This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another episode of the Islamic History Podcast. This is the 10th episode in the second season of the Islamic History Podcast in which we are covering the first 100 years of Islam after the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. In today's episode, we are going to look at the Muslim conquest of Alexandria and see how Alexandria was surprisingly peacefully conquered. And you will see what I mean very soon, inshallah. Show notes for today's episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Alexandria. And so with that, let's get into the show, Season 2, Episode 10 of the Islamic History Podcast. Let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, died in the year 632 of the Common Era, and his companion and best friend Abu Bakr was chosen as caliph or leader of the Muslim world. Soon after that, several Arab tribes rebelled against Abu Bakr, and Abu Bakr and his primary general, Khalid ibn Walid, fought against these rebellious tribes in what became known as the Wars of Apostasy. Abu Bakr and Khalid ibn Walid, they were successful in the wars of apostasy, and after that, Abu Bakr began simultaneous invasions of Persia and Syria to the north of the Arabian Peninsula. Khalid ibn Walid led the invasion of Persia, while another companion named Abu Ubaidah led the invasion of Syria. Khalid ibn Walid was very successful in Persia, however, Abu Ubaidah struggled a bit in Syria. Therefore, Khalid ibn Walid took over operations in Syria and he was ultimately successful there as well. In the midst of these operations, Abu Bakr died and another companion named Omar ibn al-Khattab became the caliph of the Muslim world. Omar almost immediately demoted Khalid ibn Walid from the position of top general of the Muslim armies. However, Khalid ibn Walid remained as an important commander within the military. Soon after, the Romans and the Persians began to push back against these Muslim invasions, leading to the penultimate battles of Yarmouk and Cordesia. The Muslim armies were victorious in both of these major battles, the results of which led to the Muslims pushing the Romans almost completely out of Syria for good and almost destroying the Persian Sassanid dynasty. Not long after that, the Muslim world was hit with a severe drought followed by a famine as well as a plague that caused much suffering and cost countless lives. Meanwhile, the companion, Amr ibn al-As, saw that Egypt, still controlled by the Romans, would be the logical next step for the Muslim conquest. Amr began an invasion of Egypt and, after a slow start, 
began to capture several Egyptian cities and fortresses, ultimately Babylon, which is now in the modern-day city of Cairo. Amr and the Egyptian leader, an archbishop named Cyrus, brokered a peace treaty to prevent the Muslims from going for the Roman capital of Egypt, known as Alexandria. However, this peace treaty was rejected by the Byzantine emperor Heraclius. Therefore, the Muslims were still at war. And this is where we pick up our story. Since Heraclius had rejected Cyrus's treaty with Amr, several Roman soldiers continued to hold out within the fortress of Babylon. One of the companions within Amr ibn al-As's military was the illustrious companion Zubair ibn al-Awwam. Zubair ibn al-Awwam, he led this final push that drove the Romans out of this final Babylonian fortress once and for all. So by April of the year 641, the Muslims had complete control over the city and most of the Nile Delta region. And since Heraclius had rejected the peace treaty, Amr decided it was fair game to continue his march towards Alexandria, the capital of Egypt. However, before leaving, Amr made sure to take care of certain administrative duties, such as making repairs on the fortresses and castles and defenses that had been destroyed during the battles, finalizing the jizya payments for those towns and settlements that did peacefully submit to Muslim control, and of course establishing governments, governors, commanders, and laws in the captured cities. Now, there is a story also that before Amr actually left Babylon, a dove had built a nest on his tent. And when Amr noticed that the dove had built a nest and had also laid eggs in the nest on the tent, Amr took this as a sign from Allah and ordered his men to leave his tent there with the nest and the dove and her eggs right there on it. So Amr left Babylon with the tent and the dove and the nest still standing. As we mentioned in the last episode, the Archbishop Cyrus had been stripped of his command and exiled by Emperor Heraclius. And so now Amr's primary adversary was a Roman general named Theodore, a more incompetent general the world has probably never seen. Theodore tried everything he could to halt Amr's progress, and he was absolutely unsuccessful every single time. Amr destroyed Theodore's defenses, captured his forces, and in May of 641, destroyed Theodore's army that was patrolling the Nile River. So now, Amr had control of both sides of the Nile River, which means that he pretty much had control over Egypt's commerce and economy. Amr continued to spank Theodore up and down Egypt as he captured the cities of Tirana, Nakiyu, Karayun, and several Roman fortresses along the way. These constant victories by Amr threw the rest of Egypt into panic and chaos. There were Romans fighting against Romans as civil war broke out all over the country. There were those Romans who wanted to capitulate and give up to Amr. There were those who wanted to remain loyal to the empire. 
And then there were the Coptic Christians who were rising up against their Roman overlords. Ahmed, for his part, had nothing to do with any of this internal strife. But of course, he did nothing to stop it either because it benefited him. Any expenditures and wealth and attention and energy the Romans had to use against their own rank and file soldiers and citizens, that meant those couldn't be used against Ahmed. So Ahmed continued to progress and eventually he reached the city of Alexandria in July 641. This was perhaps the most magnificent and biggest city that the Arab armies had encountered to this point. Now, they had, of course, seen Damascus and they have seen Tessiphon and they had seen Jerusalem, but none of that compared to Alexandria. Let's just give a brief history of the city of Alexandria. The city of Alexandria was founded by the man that it is named after, the Greek general Alexander the Great. The Arabic name for Alexandria is Al-Iskandaria. Initially, Alexander the Great had meant for this city to be this great center of Hellenistic culture. However, Alexander the Great himself, he spent very little time in the city that he founded and that is named after him. In fact, soon after he founded the city, he handed control over it to one of his generals. And then he went back on the warpath and never returned to Alexandria at all. Alexandria continued to flourish and grow, and at one point, it was actually the second most important city in the world after the city of Rome. It was like if Rome was the New York City of today, then Alexandria was like London. There are two Alpha Plus cities in the world, New York City and London today. During this period of time, the two alpha cities were Rome and Alexandria. Alexandria was absolutely crucial to the Roman Empire's economy and well-being. Alexandria linked the European parts of the Roman Empire with Arabia and Asia. Just before Prophet Muhammad made the hijrah to Medina from Mecca, Alexandria had been conquered by the Persians. As we mentioned earlier, before the Muslims really came on the scene, there was a long feud between the Romans and the Persians. During this long period of warfare, the Persians managed to capture Alexandria. However, 10 years later, it was recaptured by Emperor Heraclius and the Romans. And now, just a few years after finally capturing it back from the Persians, the Romans were about to lose it again to the Muslims. However, there was one thing preventing the Muslims from complete conquest of the capital, Alexandria. It was the primary fortress of Alexandria, which was strategically built right on the coast. If you don't know where Alexandria is, it is on the northern coast of Egypt with one of its borders as the Mediterranean Sea. 
This fortress was well stocked with soldiers and supplies, so they weren't going to run out of either anytime soon. It had very strong walls. After all, the Romans had been fighting the Persians for many years before that. And it was right there on the coast and guarded by several canals. And the Muslims didn't really have much of a navy at this time to attack. The fortress itself sat off the coast of Alexandria. So, so the Romans could always access this fortress from the sea and restock it with more soldiers and more supplies. And there was nothing the Muslims could do about that because, once again, they had no navy to speak of. And so the Romans were able to embargo themselves inside the fortress of Alexandria and they could just launch catapults and flaming arrows and all sorts of things on the Muslim armies, similar to what they did in Babylon. Only in this instance, the prospects of the Muslims capturing the fortress of Alexandria were almost zero. It would be very, very difficult for them to get through. There was no hope of starving them out like they had been able to do in Damascus. Alexandria was a huge city. There was no way the Muslims could completely seal off all entrances and exits to the city. There was no way to prevent food and supplies coming into the city, even by land. They tried their best to do so, but there was no way they would be completely successful in cutting off Alexandria. On top of that, they still had the sea to deal with, in which the Muslims could do nothing about that. So this fortress could have held out for a very long time. During this period, there was not much Ahmad ibn al-As and his men could do but occupy the rest of the city of Alexandria and do their best to keep supplies from entering the fortress. However, as is often the case, politics became the thing that changed everything. We mentioned how after Heraclius died, his son Constantine III succeeded him and became the emperor of Rome. However, Constantine only lasted for a few months and died from tuberculosis. Thereafter, his brother Heraclius, his actually half-brother Heraclius, became the emperor of Rome. But those strings were really being pulled by his mother, who was also the widow of Emperor Heraclius. His mother Martina was the one really calling the shots. And they were able to rule the Roman Empire for about four months, even though they were under a cloud of suspicion. And ultimately, that suspicion would lead to their own overthrow, dismemberment and exile. But during this period, during that four month period, when Heraclonas and his mother Martina controlled the Roman Empire, they made several changes. One of the biggest changes they made was recalling our friend Archbishop Cyrus out of exile and reinstalling him as the Archbishop of Egypt. So Cyrus returned to Alexandria, began persecuting the Coptic Christians over the whole Chalcedonian decree that we mentioned before, and somewhat inexplicably re-entered peace negotiations with Ahmed Ibn al-As. And we say inexplicably because it was a bit of surprise. Remember, the Muslims really had very little chance of capturing that fortress. Now, true, they controlled the rest of the city pretty much, but 
that fortress could hold out against the Muslims for quite some time. Perhaps Cyrus wanted to bring peace to the land. Perhaps he wanted to ensure no more civilians or Christians were killed in these battles. Who knows? But for whatever reason, he entered negotiations with Amr ibn al-As. And over time, the two of them came up with a peace treaty. And this time, there was no emperor Heraclius to reject it. And so, by November of 641, Amr ibn As and Cyrus had a peace agreement in hand. The terms of the peace agreement were pretty much as follows. Alexandria would belong to the Muslims, and the Romans would promise not to try to take it back. There would be peace and all fighting within the city of Alexandria, and the Delta region would cease for at least 11 months. The citizens of Alexandria, they had to pay the jizya, except for those who were excluded, such as priests and old people, very young people, very poor people, and so forth and so on. All of the Roman soldiers who were still holed up in that fortress, they would be allowed to leave peacefully and return to Anatolia if they decided to, or if they decided to stay in Alexandria, they could peacefully, however, they had to pay the jizya also. The Muslims promised to allow all Christians and Jews to live in Alexandria and worship in Alexandria peacefully with no impediments to their faith whatsoever. And as a guarantee of the Muslims' assurances, they had to give 200 hostages to the Romans. Therefore, if the Muslims broke any of these agreements, the Romans had these hostages to dangle in front of them. And so with that, Alexandria was pretty much captured by the Muslims peacefully. Now, despite Alexandria's importance, despite it being the London of the ancient world, Omar ibn al-Khattab, the caliph of the Muslim world, he didn't really like it. He didn't want it to be the, the capital of Muslim Egypt. As you've probably come to understand by now, Omar ibn al-Khattab was a bit of a micromanager. But this is a big thing, so we can understand him not wanting to keep Alexandria as the capital, as the center for the Muslim administration of Egypt. So he decided, and he commanded really, Amr ibn al-As to find a different location to be the center of the Muslim government for Egypt. And Omar actually had a point because Alexandria was right on the sea, the Muslims had no navy, and it, despite all of these agreements between Cyrus and Amr, Alexandria was susceptible to naval attacks. During this whole campaign, Ahmed had already made Babylon his primary headquarters. So he returned to Babylon and he decided to build his new capital right there. And in fact, he started with building a masjid. And you know how we Muslims are. Whenever we go traveling somewhere, what's the first thing we look for? We look for a masjid. Then we look for a halal place to eat. But the first thing we look for is a masjid, a mosque. Same thing with Ahmed ibn al-As. The first thing he did was build a mosque. And he built his mosque right there where his tent was with that dove and her nest and her necks, which had probably hatched by now, 
but he built his mosque right there where that tent was. And that mosque, the mosque of Ahmed ibn As, still stands even to this day in Egypt. This new capital built around this tent where the dove was would be called Fustat, the Arabic word for tent. 300 years later, Egypt would be conquered by another group of Shiite Muslims called Ismailis, and they would build a new city just north of the Muslim capital of Fustat. This new city would be called Al-Qahira, meaning the conqueror, because the Ismailis believed that they were conquering the Sunni Muslim world. Fustat would eventually be absorbed into Al-Qahira, or as we call it in English, Cairo. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial, useful, educational, and all that good stuff. Not going to waste too much time. Don't have any stories today for you. Um, No more history of my history. Anyway, but I do have a review. There is a new review on iTunes regarding the Islamic History Podcast. And and as I so often like to do, I would like to read this review to you, mostly because it's, it's kind of a mixed review. It's not all bad, but it's not exactly good either. In fact, it is my first three star review. Kind of surprising. Well, anyway, here's the here's uh, the comments from Lisala. Assalamu alaikum. I was looking for a historical Islamic podcast, and I like this one a lot. It is informative, interesting, and the host is engaging. Well, thank you, Lisala. I would like it more if it didn't keep referring to the Bible and other non-Islamic texts, though. Good job here. Okay, well, thank you, Lisala, for your feedback. I, I do appreciate both your uh, criticism as well as your compliments. Believe me, both are much appreciated and help give me insight into how I can improve, inshallah. Uh, and I guess you're probably referring to the first season of the Islamic History Podcast, where we discussed a lot of stories from the Quran and the historical background of these stories in the Quran. And very often I did refer to the Bible and other secular texts as well in order to give you a more rounded story. And my reasoning for doing this was that I wanted to give you a better understanding of the entire story of these historical occurrences in the Quran because, let's face it, in many instances, the Quran does not give us that that much information. It just doesn't. And sometimes we have to go look other places if we want more information besides what is just in the Quran. The Quran gives us the spiritual significance of those stories. But if you want to know more of the broader historical significance of a story, then sometimes you'll have to go beyond the Quran. And I'm not alone in this because guess what? Imam Ibn Kathir, in his tafsir of the Qur'an, which is the most popular tafsir in the world, he does the same thing. He quotes extensively from the Bible regarding different prophets and stories and events that happen in the Qur'an that also coincide with what happened in the Bible, or at least what the Bible says. So, 
we can have a better understanding from a historical perspective, not spiritually perspective, from a historical perspective, we can have a better understanding of these stories if we are willing to look at and at least investigate every single occurrences of that story, even if it happens outside of the Quran. Now, as far as this season is concerned, this is obviously the stories that we're talking about now won't be in the Quran because the Quran was completely revealed by the time our story pretty much starts. So I want you to understand that, of course, I do use some secular texts in order to fill this out. But for the most part, most of my research and study for the season two of the Islamic History Podcast come from modern historical texts written by Muslims. For the most part, they are written by Muslims. Sometimes I do like to get another perspective. So I may look at some uh, secular or non-Islamic text just to get a better perspective and see other things. But for the vast majority of my work, it is written by Muslim historians, contemporary modern Muslim historians, not the ancient uh, sheikhs and all. But most of our modern work is based off of the ancient work also, such as Atabari and Ibn Kathir and others. But anyway, just wanted you to understand my reasoning for using the Bible in the old season, on the last season of the Islamic History podcast and what I'm doing right now. But nonetheless, thank you, Lisala, for your information, for your feedback. I will humbly accept it. Inshallah, I will try to do better. Amen. One other thing and I want to touch on before we wrap up is in this episode of the Islamic History Podcast, you notice we talked about the city of Cairo towards the end. Uh, I just wanted you to understand that there's a lot more information about this city and about the people who founded it, the Ismailis. I have done an extensive, extensive series, I think a five or six part series on the Ismailis and the assassins. If, and that includes some parts of the history of Cairo as well in Egypt. And if you're interested in hearing that, you can find it on uh, in the Islamic Learning Materials Club or the Elm Club, as I sometimes call it. You can find the full set in there, inshallah. It is, it is currently available. And I strongly encourage you to join the Islamic Learning Materials Club. Once again, proceeds from there go to keeping this podcast running and all that kind of good stuff. And there is a new article on the website, islamiclearningmaterials.com, written by, once again, Sister Subhana Wahaj. It is called, It Doesn't Feel Good to Be Judged. This is written by the sister. Of course, I had to pay her for it. And once again, I always remind you that when you help with the finances behind the podcast, I use it to pay others to help keep the podcast running and the cycle keeps going. So inshallah, links to that article, which I think you should read as well, will be available in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Alexandria. And links to the Islamic Learning Materials Club will also be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Alexandria. And so once again, I will ask you, inshallah, if you have the time to please like and subscribe and rate the show. But most importantly is to subscribe on iTunes. That's the best thing you can do, inshallah. Other than that, I would like to thank you for sticking with me. This is the 10th episode. And alhamdulillah, if you've been with me this long, I'm presuming you must enjoy it. And I'm hoping I'm meeting your expectations in multiple ways. And I hope, inshallah, that Allah will allow me to get better and better at doing something that I really, really do enjoy.
So since this is the 10th episode of the second season of the Islamic History Podcast, which used to be called Becoming a Better Muslim, which used to be called The Elm Show, since this is the 10th episode, I decided to wrap it up with a very special closing nasheed. This song is called Mehrajan Tasawuk, and it means shopping festivity. Go figure. Once you hear it, I'm sure you will recognize the tune. Until next week, inshallah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. منكم وفيكم زم منكم وفيكم زم